Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of science and spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Phil. And I'm Henny. And today we're going to be talking about environmental sustainability in magic. Before we get into that, hello, we're not dead. (laughs) We are very much alive. We've kind of just all been going through some stuff. Burnout is real. Busy life is a thing. But we are probably hopping back on the bandwagon, so you'll be seeing more of us in the coming months. All right, so to get back into it, Hanny, do you want to do our What Happened on This Day? So I didn't find very much sustainability related for today, which is the 19th of November, but I was interested to know that it was the death of John Wilkins, who was an English churchman, scholar and scientist. He was one of the founders and the first secretary of the Royal Society in London, which if you don't know is a a scientific society. He wrote for the Common Reader and the Discovery in the Discourse, which showed how reason and experience supported Copernicus, Kepler and Galileo, rather than Aristotelian or literal biblical doctrines. Um, in 1641, he anonymously published a small but comprehensive treatise on cryptography, and in a treatise called Mathematical Magic, he described and illustrated the balance lever, pulley, wedge, and screw. This is a really interesting document, by the way, if you have time to look. It has things like flying machines, artificial spiders, descriptions of monks trying to fly and falling to their death, perpetual motion. It is just really a wild ride, so definitely recommend. I love that. Why did we choose to talk about sustainability? First, we should definitely shout out a member of our Discord server, Kelsey, who suggested the episode to us. Then we kind of talked about it and decided that it'd be a good topic to cover because sustainability with the environment is a topic that is talked a lot about in the witchcraft community, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of practical application, I guess, or it's overlooked and kind of pushed to the side and not addressed. We thought it would be a good thing to discuss kind of more in depth here. Anybody else have any other reasons why we decided to talk about it? Because it's not just me. (laughs) I mean, I guess from me, like I've been, I guess, fairly open about on this podcast. Um, I am a a climate activist in a large part of my life. And one thing that uh, the New York Times has actually covered a couple of times now is that something like climate hope has shown to be more effective at generating action than climate doom. And I think one thing with sustainability is it grants you a sense of autonomy And once you have a sense of autonomy and have a sense of, I don't want to say control, but I guess in a way that's kind of what autonomy is, um, it allows you to push for part of a movement of action, I guess. Um, For me as well, I think it'll, we'll maybe get into this later in the podcast and make it a bit more ranty, but I feel like we live in a consumerist hellscape and um, spirituality is not really immune from that. So I think it's a really important topic to discuss because this is a big elephant in the room. And maybe that's something that we need to address as a community. It's interesting that you brought up the idea of climate hope um, because it has been a shift. I think even in the discussion of climate change, kind of within the scientific community, it's moved away from the the earth is burning, we're all going to die, to what are some ways that we can sustainably try and help the earth recover and then also allow a good place for like our children to grow up in. It's very much so shifted to a, okay, let's stop with the doomsday and actually get up our butts and try and do something about it, which has actually been really invigorating to see, for sure. So let's actually talk about what it means to be sustainable in, as Hanny so eloquently said, a capitalistic hellscape. So something that I wanted to bring up is that 
I see a lot of times people, especially in the occult community, but not just the occult community, it's just generally a lot more, I don't know, you see it on Twitter, RIP, uh, maybe it'll still be alive when we come out, who knows. Um, <laughs> you see it a lot on Twitter, Discord, etc. It's just commonly touted amongst like this, our generation and um, the generation after us. Uh, there is no ethical consumerism under capitalism. And while that is true, I think there's a big difference between just saying fuck it, do whatever because of that and making conscious choices. So just because there's no ethical consumerism under capitalism doesn't mean that you should shop from Shein, right? There are a lot more options. Sometimes when I have like people in my life have been like, oh, like Shein's doing a sale. And I'm like, hmm, they really like suck. Like they're actively committing crimes against humanity. Uh, maybe don't support them. And then they say, well, no ethical consumption under capitalism. I'm like, yes, that's true. But like, you don't need to shop from Shein. So the the quote in general, I think is kind of a misappropriation of that quote where that quote originally developed because of like, if you're, if you're a climate activist or have gone to any sort of climate thing, uh, and you like start talking about it, someone goes, oh, well, how did you get here today? Basically being like, oh, well, you drive a car, so everything you say is invalid. So the phrase kind of developed as a rebuttal to that, where it's like, well, yes, I still have to use the tools of this society because I live within this society. But I've seen in our community that that phrase has gotten used to just kind of mean do whatever, and I don't, I think that's a dangerous place to be in. If that makes sense. I don't know if you guys have any other. I definitely, definitely agree with that. I think also coming back to this idea of climate hope, which you described before, I think it's very, very, very easy to get overwhelmed with climate things because there's so much doom and naysaying. And so it's sort of easier to say, oh, well, there's nothing I can do. I'm, I'm sort of a limited, I have limited capacity as an individual and bury your head in the sand and just say, well, I can't do anything. So I may as well just live my life and not think about it. Um, I think that's the kind of mindset it comes from where you feel like your actions don't mean anything, so you may as well not take part. And I think that's a really devastating mindset to have. And it's important to maintain that sense of hope and mitigation. Even if it's a small part, it's an important part to play. I agree. I think people also, like Hanny was saying, they take a very like individualistic perspective where it's um, the stance of I'm only one person, what will happen if I, you know, decide to recycle or do anything that increases sustainability. And I kind of like to bring it back to this idea of mycelium, right? That underlying like laying connection that mushrooms have in the forest and stuff. And it's very similar. Like the earth is an entire organ in and of itself, a body, if you will, with many multiple parts all interconnected in terms of its health. And humans are a part of that. There's also a seemingly kind of human-centered consideration when people talk about environmental sustainability as if it's only for the benefit of humans. We rely on our ecosystem. And even though that fuels our survival, if we don't take care of it, then there is no survival for literally anybody. So keeping in mind, too, within the climate hope that it's it's not just human survival. It's it's the whole Earth as this kind of this whole living, breathing organism that we have to really be concerned about when it comes to sustainability. And I think kind of having that bigger picture can be really helpful and because it gives people a reason to be individually engaged in sustainability. Being one with the nature around you, it kind of brings up this personal responsibility that can lead to people wanting to actually engage in these practices. 
Right. And like, I also want to be very, very, very clear that like the brunt of like climate destruction is on, you know, 350 companies, right? That's the the general state. And like, even if every single individual were to like be super sustainable, it still necessarily wouldn't combat them. But the reason to me sustainability is important is because of that autonomy. And also it teaches adaptability and like not to get I know we were just talking about climate hope but it's like the reality is the world is going to change we don't know what that looks like we can either have I think I was reading in a book it's called either like the doom mindset or the resilience mindset a resilient mindset might be like learning how to grow plants for example learning how to sow etc etc and like that can sound kind of like doomsday prepper kind of mentality but there is a sense self-sufficiency in that while also engaging with like the earth and engaging in community i think to me uh, sustainable communities are important because you know if one day you're i don't know if you're in a crazy drought like i was this summer you can lean on your community and the tools that you've gathered as a community to help yourselves out of that so yeah it's not like one of those things where oh well if everybody just recycled like you know that's 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 not the case but i think Sustainability is a lot more a practice and um, mindset and consciousness and conscious choices than anything else. I think there's an economic and political landscape to be considered there, too, especially with the conscious conscious choices being made. You know, we saw with the overturning of Roe v. Wade what the pressure that the kind of votes of women and their outspokenness can have on the generation of different laws, whether things pass or don't pass in certain states, even they're like looking back at the decision and considering perhaps undoing the overruling. I think the same thing can happen if people were to kind of collectively put pressure on the government to bring about laws that will protect the environment and not just the government. I mean, talking, we're talking economic as well. Um, Bell talked about not ordering from Shane because they're an awful company. But that also goes for like, Things that you might find in the grocery store, the companies that are more environmentally friendly, are they a bit more costly perhaps? And if you're not in the right, proper, like economic, you know, comfortable range with, with money to buy those, that's okay. But like, if you have a conscious choice, supporting the companies that support those endeavors is really important. And it kind of shifts the supply and demand, which can then have a larger impact on kind of a grander scale. That's like a small individual thing you can do that could actually lead to a very legitimate shift in the importance of what we focus on in the future. Right. And to kind of talk a little bit more about the conscious choice thing and like how sustainability, quote unquote, sustainable acts aren't necessarily as important as sustainable mindset or sustainable way of going about your life. So, for example, like, hope I don't get destroyed here and people don't <laughs> don't don't try to email us and blame me. Veganism. So a lot of times, a big part of a lot of vegans' belief set is that it is more sustainable. And then oftentimes this leads to blaming and shaming, or it's like, oh, well, I can't afford to eat vegan, or I live in a food desert. It's like, well, a lot of times people like that get blamed and shamed. However, the thing is, while, yes, the global meat and dairy industry is extraordinarily destructive to the environment a lot of vegan options have led to environmental crises in poorer countries so for example 
soy. Soy has like destroyed rainforests, soy farms. The death of bees have, have been linked to almond milk because the bees get really stressed out. Almond milk also requires a ton of water. And a lot of these farms are in California for some reason. And so that gets really stressed on that part of the environment. Not to mention 70 per or agriculture is responsible for about 70% of child labor. A lot of times what happens with these sustainable quote unquote products is uh, they are staple crops in other nations that are often taken advantage of. And then the staple crop gets driven up in prices. So then people kind of starve because they can't have the staple crop because it's being exported to vegans in the quote-unquote Western world. So perhaps in certain cases, it's more ethical or more quote-unquote sustainable to purchase milk from a local farmer or go meat-free some days. Really think about, you know, like, do I want to buy quinoa or am I <laughs> just profiting from a nation's staple crop? And this is not to say that, like, I go about my entire life and I'm, like, thinking about this, but it's it's one of those things where, yeah, you have to think when people proclaim that something is cruelty-free, you really have to, to wonder, is it? Or what does it mean? What does cruelty-free mean? Is it just cruelty-free to animals or is it cruelty-free to humans as well? I think it comes down to this idea that maybe that there's a sort of mythical singular sustainable lifestyle that everybody could just subscribe to and then that would be fine and you know everything would be great and we'd live in this utopia but that's not necessarily true like every decision that you make is context dependent and really what we're trying to move towards is mitigation in a global sense so that's going to involve organization it's going to involve economic changes it's going to involve um, cultural changes in which we all consume less those are those are not really easy concepts to communicate but it's kind of all about like you said that mindset of um, developing these choices in a, a thoughtful and sort of personal way absolutely i also it's interesting too because i think in regards to like the not necessarily buying civil crops from other areas so that people have access to them Within the scientific community, especially, right, there has been a huge focus on green energy and genetic manipulation. I know people hate GMO plants, but like, they're not all bad, okay? Like GMOs and using kind of natural ways to like make them more sustainable and so that we don't have to use like less chemicals. Or I know currently at my own job, there's a huge, like tons of money being dumped into finding different like treatments for crops that come from nature. So from plants or other things that will lead to the reduction of pesticide use, which will allow soil to become rich again. It'll bring back the like insect life and other mammals and stuff that can't necessarily be in the areas where pesticides are used because it can be toxic to them. Less pesticide being washed into water. Like all of these things have a really huge impact on the environment that will happen slowly over time. But especially within the scientific community, that focus on green research is something that I hope we really continue to see just explode in the future because I guess a shift to like synthetic things being okay, but the, like synthetic chemicals and other stuff being derived from or inspired by nature is perhaps the better way to go in this effort to produce something that won't have an impact on the environment, but still fulfills the need of humans so that we're not kind of competing between like the environment versus humans, which is not what it should be, rather kind of living together. I was going to say, just bringing this back to the sort of topic of the episode relating to spirituality, I think this is why virtual organizations in particular have such an important part to play, because a lot of this, as you say, it's based in 
our mindsets and it's based in our traditions and norms and um, like it or not religious institutions have a huge role in our um, cultural norms and so they play a large role in shaping our behaviors and our mindsets on these things so that's kind of the, the point at which I think science and spirituality can intersect on these things and make positive changes. Absolutely. I think the moral codes that often stem from people's religion and their beliefs also has an impact on the importance of sustainability to people. So, you know, doing what we always do, talking a little about about history, talking about is there historical examples where stewardship of nature plays an important role? I would say a significant amount of history, this is the case. I mean, when the earth is angry, crops fail and people die. That's just like the short of it. So, I mean, like how many tales, like an, how many ancient Greek tales, like there's this one story where this king cut down a sacred grove to Demeter and then he got cursed. That's like a common trope, not just in Greek mythology. You see this throughout various like parts of Celtic mythology. You see this just all around the world. There's this idea of harming earth equals bad. There's also yeah, like a strong tie between this and nature, but there's also a strong historical evidence for like disconnect. I mean, like those stories wouldn't exist if there wasn't a disconnect from time to time with people. And especially as, um, you know, our good friends, the Victorians, <laughs> as uh, urbanization and industrialization happened, obviously that kind of happened at an accelerated pace. But before I talk about, about that, I want to touch on something that I think is pretty cool, talking about stewardship intermixing with more occult or spiritual practices. I think I brought it up before, but it's the Farmer's Almanac. I love the Farmer's Almanac. It's uh, a lot of our modern society's focus on certain elements of pop astrology actually comes from the Farmer's Almanac. The Farmer's Almanac, it was really big into Mercury retrograde. And I honestly think part of our obsession with Mercury retrograde comes from Farmer's Almanac being like it's all of the retrogrades are listed in the Almanac because it was also all of like the fun moon names like the blood moon or the flower moon or like all of those stem from the Farmer's Almanac. So the Farmer's Almanac began in 1792 uh, in New England. It was originally just New England and it now uh, encompasses pretty much the entirety of the United States. They have local ones. They're only like $5. But what's interesting about it is it's very much like this blend of English, Irish, Scottish, and German folk magic, which 1792, it would have been primarily English folk magic. But as a lot of people moved and settled into the Appalachian areas, then you get your Irish, Scottish, and German folk magic, uh, as well as a lot of early modern science. Like the dude who invented it, uh, who created the Almanac in 1792, supposedly had this secret weather detecting system that they still don't let anybody see. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that like they don't let anybody touch it. And it's been like, it has a range of accuracy. That's actually a fun thing that a lot of like people studying weather science like to do is gauging how accurate the farmer's almanac is. But it's wild. They like predict the entire weather for the year. The almanac also incorporated certain, uh, or incorporates, I should say, it's still around, certain indigenous calendar traditions and mythology. And the almanac has gotten a lot better in recent years of actually naming and crediting specific tribes uh, instead of just kind of blanket stating everything. What's interesting about it too is they also tied every kind of crop to a part of the body. So for example, you know, you're supposed to plant potatoes on a waning moon because waning moon means it's under the earth. So you're supposed to plant it on a, a waning moon. 
And I think potatoes are tied to like the feet or something, but like they each are tied to a different body part. It's like if you're sick in this part, maybe like boil potatoes and stick your feet in them or something like it's tied to a lot of folk medicine as well. Um, A lot of I love I've recently been really into like farmers astrology, like the kind of astrology that like a lot of um, like English farmers were doing here in the United States in like the 17th century. It's fascinating stuff because people when they hear me talk about like astrology, which obviously I'm not as interested like as deep into it as Astra is, but they're like they automatically think I'm talking about pop astrology. I'm like, yo, the Puritans had astrological stuff written in their Bibles like farmers super into astrology but anyway so that's just like one example of something that's kind of this perfect intersection almost between science mundane and uh, folk magic and that's definitely a really big part of uh, American agricultural history and that's not even just like it doesn't just go back to like American history right I think this kind of idea that the planets influence the I guess, preparedness of the fields in terms of planting crops or wanting to harvest, um, all of that. It's always been very tied to the heavens. And you see that even in like Great Egyptian Magic and the PGM, there's plenty of spells that will tell you to take some specific agricultural thing at a specific time. A lot of talismans and the Picatrix are also related to agriculture, very specific in terms of what you want to grow, when you harvest for the best yield, so on and so forth. There's always been a very close tie historically between nature and kind of astrology and like the science behind it even though like we wouldn't consider it science today by the official definition I do think there's something to be said about the accuracy of those descriptions it's it's very fascinating looking at kind of I've really enjoyed like the Picatrix with agriculture and astrology it's really really interesting but yeah I think it's basically impossible pretty much to look at like any kind of magical practice or uh, spiritual tradition and divorce it from the earth because I think a lot of it is people trying to make sense of the earth like maybe certain like certain parts of ceremonial magic are like not as earth-centric but then again a lot of times there's astrology involved which is obviously tied to (laughs) to nature but But even then they are like so it's with ceremonial magic right one of the things that even though we work a lot of times with like celestial spirit those that are above kind of the lunar like plane there's a lot of work done with the terrestrial spirits as well and a lot of that is tied very closely to caring for your environment like those spirits of the land around you they they do tend to have a kind of desire for you to foster the land around you to make offerings that will benefit the land around you your community i live right by some water i deal with water elementals on a fairly common basis Um, And they've asked for things that I've happily done. Even then, there's a tie within the ceremonial magician sphere of like, the sublunar spirits are concerned with the nature of this world. It's not something that they will ignore. But even the celestial spirits, like you still, if you work with angels, sometimes they'll remind you of the fact that, you know, man was ordered to be a gardener, a caretaker of the world. It's certainly not something... Like, I think a lot of ceremonialists sometimes forget about forget about it, even though it's definitely still an aspect of what we do, for sure. Yeah, it's not just folk traditions. It definitely has its role in, in ceremonial as well. I really liked this quote from Grimm and Tucker, which I think kind of sums it all up. It says, religions connect humans with a divine presence or numinous force, thereby bonding human communities and assisting in forging relations with the broader earth community. 
In summary, religions aid in linking humans to the larger mystery from which life arises, unfolds, and flourishes. Like I think those things, those general concepts of sort of connection to the earth, connection to a broader community, and all sort of muddling our way throughout the, this sort of mystery of life together, it, it can be applied to many, many different religions, and it, it sort of highlights our intrinsic connection to the environment in which we live. It's 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 really impossible to disconnect from spirituality. I think. And this connection between kind of spirituality and its impact on environmental sustainability has actually come up in like political discussions. I There was a thesis that I pulled up earlier about someone who wrote about kind of this interconnectedness between religion and the impact that it has on kind of this rise in environmental sustainability. The role of religion as a guarding force for our environment is something that's actually become a really hot topic for reasons that you've mentioned, um, because it's sort of I don't want to say being capitalized on by environmentalists, but it's being increasingly recognized um, for its importance. So even the UN has a page on um, how important um, religious institutions can be in facilitating environmental causes. So I found a few examples, and I'd love for you, you guys to also chime in if you have any. There are examples from Islam, where humanity is supposed to be sort of God's trustee of the earth. There are concepts in ecological stewardship in Christian religion from Genesis 1 and 2. But this isn't limited also to, to Abrahamic religions. Um, this is also a really important concept in indigenous spiritual traditions. And I think this is an especially important to mention because indigenous lands are especially threatened by um, things like deforestation and um, exploitation of natural resources. So denigration of their traditions, their norms, their, their um, kind of spiritual realities also has a really negative impact on the environment. So I think these things are, they seem like they might be divorced from um sort of science and environmental causes but in reality they're they're all sort of very intrinsically tied together can you guys think of any other examples there's like a lot i mean the really the forefront of the environmental movement at least here in the united states has been indigenous people and that that's like something that uh, a lot of environmental groups who have traditionally um not helped <laughs> have been reckoning with, like I know Greenpeace recently has been reckoning with that. So I think in a, in a lot of, and I, like I don't want to make a blanket statement, but it's like a core part of environmentalism has been this connection um, with the earth and also this connection with indigenous ancestors. I mean, yeah, like since, since the dawn of time, really, at least here in the United States, indigenous people have been the leaders uh, both spiritually and activism wise of the environmental movement. And it's like impossible to divorce the movement from that deep spirituality. Absolutely. Even from like a scientific standpoint, continued evidence that begins that has been coming out about the inherent necessity of time spent in nature to the health of humans, I think only adds to those arguments of why sustainability is such a huge concern. There have been so many papers within the last like five years that are seeing this tie to human health being associated with like the removal of nature in some areas or the reintroduction of it in others and kind of the the shifts it's caused in the population in those areas. And so there's even like, like religious, scientific, and also socioeconomic like tie-in all put together that is so critical. It's, impo it's impossible to separate. And I think people who try are just so ignorant to like <laughs> this tie together. I don't understand how like you can separate it. Religiously speaking, the 
Indigenous people of America are to be praised to so many levels by bringing kind of these issues to the forefront. Also, like reintroduction of a lot of nature-based pagan practices, I think have also helped foster this a little bit and added more voices to the cause because there's such a big kind of refocus on connecting with nature in your practice by going on walks, joining like like joining different parks and offering to like pick up trash along the trails and planting trees and so like all these things you can kind of do when you're engaged in your community to help the local forest or the local plant plants and stuff. But even within kind of the Abrahamic religions, it's been interesting to see kind of this revitalization of Genesis 2. So Genesis 1 in the Bible refers to man as a steward of the earth. And this, the connotation of this word is very much so um, kind of meant, interpreted as like being domineering, right? So it's like we are, man was put in place to rule over and control the earth and use it to sustain the needs of man or, you know, humans, if we don't want to use that word. But there's also in Genesis 2, there's kind of this like other interpretation that's presented to us as man being the caretaker of the garden, a gardener, someone who's meant to foster the environment and help it thrive as much as the rest of us are. And it's been interesting within the Abrahamic circles in recent years, there has been a shift in this kind of understanding away from the idea of, well, so to be a little bit history, Francis Bacon was actually one of the big push people who pushed this idea of kind of a domination of nature um, in the Renaissance period when innovation and science were really beginning to flourish. But in recent years, it's interesting to see that kind of older perspective being pushed to the side as a lot of newer Christians or members of the Abrahamic religions come forward and begin to see the man, God, and the earth and nature kind of all synonymous as one. And as much as we are given control over the other beings of earth, we're also instructed to be caretakers of it and to sustainably provide both for the current environment that we engage in, but also for future generations. I think that shift has also been really crucial um, and even added more voices even to the cause. Yeah, I found quite a lot of um, sort of real life examples because this is obviously becoming increasingly important. And in this regard, there have been lots of scientific and religious collaborations, which I thought was really exciting to sort of mm-hmm. to out- outreach between um, scientists who are trying to um, preserve conservation and religious groups where they already sort of had an interest in this, but they're um, trying to achieve it in maybe the most effective way. Um, so there's an indigenous group in um, Ghana, for example, who successfully conserved a really large portion of jungle for monkey conservation. And this arose because the uh, monkeys in that indigenous region have a sacred status. So this kind of allowed the initiative to thrive because they're already kind of a pre-existing cultural norm for it. Um, there are other examples like um, Balinese water temples where there are sacred spaces for rice paddies that allow the paddies to fallow rather than heavily industrializing them. That's allowed conservation of those areas. There are Catholic centers that focus on ecological preservation. The Dalai Lama goes to lots of, um, of ecological kind of talks and things. It's, it's really exciting and interesting to see that there's a sort of increasing interest in these collaborations and I can only hope it continues. Okay, so we've kind of talked about all these different aspects of sustainability and how the modern world and this kind of collaboration between spirituality and religion and nature and sustainability are all kind of impacted together. But what are some potential issues with these practices that you guys have heard of or even endured in your own experience? I think kind of relating to what you just said about stewardship and the Genesis 1 versus 2, like it's a very misunderstood term. 
And sometimes people think stewardship means always intervening. It, it means always doing something, always taking charge. Whereas actually stewardship can mean taking a step back, reducing your role. It can mean sometimes deferring to certain communities who maybe have a more involved role in land management. It can it can be kind of a tricky term to define. I don't know if you guys have anything to add to that. Sometimes people forget that the earth knows best, right? The earth is perfectly capable of recovering when we take a step back. And so I think sometimes like this, the forestry, I didn't even know anything about the forestry like business until I got into an environmentalist group and I realized that there was drama <laughs> and that uh, forestry groups are oftentimes very harmful because they will plant all of one same kind of tree in an area and then they all die or they use not best practices or they kind of ignore what indigenous people of that area have been saying for a long time and then just planting or, or like for example the parks in my area were built by a very well-known park designer who introduced a lot of invasives so <laughs> I think sometimes we forget that nature does know best and sometimes taking a step back like you were saying is uh, the best choice in certain cases. I think there's a lot of instances where attempted activism ecological activism completely fails so one of the ways this is, I think this happens a lot is like when people talk about like planting trees, right? It's like, oh, pay to plant a tree in a region. There is a, a statistic somewhere that I don't recall off the top of my head, but not very many of those trees that are planted in those kind of like ways actually survive because it requires kind of a substantial shift in the forestation. Like what's like Bell was saying, planting things that are native to that area not introducing invasive species, which is huge. And especially when it comes to, you know, indigenous people, like their traditions are so closely intertwined with nature that they often, whether in their mythologies or even just their traditions, will have kind of this integral understanding of what their area, their land requires. And I think we do a really big disservice both to the earth, but also to indigenous communities by saying, you know, oh, well, your like traditions don't matter. This is what we know is best from science. Like there needs to be this like middle ground found where we're listening to the communities who best know the land in their areas while also ensuring that the impact we have is sustained and actually makes a difference instead of this kind of fake activism. Like I see a lot. Yeah, it sort of goes back again to this idea of this this myth that there's a one sustainable pathway like you need to understand the cultural norms and the context of a community in order to understand what is actually going to be manageable and sustainable for those people and so understanding spiritual traditions can actually be essential to that in ensuring that people actually act on an ecological initiative and I think that's something that's been missing until fairly recently but is hopefully improving. Another thing I wanted to bring up is that um, we've mentioned indigenous people quite extensively because they have had such a massive role in um, sort of maintaining ecological activism but there is a really disproportionate impact on those communities and colonialism has basically denigrated their practices and so we also need to think about like reducing pressure on those communities because mm -hmm. it's you know it's really um, a lot of western industrialized society who has perpetuated the damage so those are pressures that we need to reduce yeah absolutely as i mentioned i'm a, cl I'm a climate activist and honestly, I don't think I've ever had like more spiritual connection to a community than amongst group of climate activists, because even though a lot of them are like 
some of them identify as atheists. Some of them identify just as like old hippies. But it's so funny. People always like break out the tarot cards. <laughs> and I'm like, what's going on? Or like, you know, sit and like hug a tree. I don't forget this old hippie telling me that his deepest experience with the trees, he dropped acid in the 60s sometime and just like sat with a tree for an hour. <laughs> so for me, my um, like sustainability in my life and specifically is deeply tied to my practice. They're inseparable. Because I kind of, so in Hellenism, something called charis, where it's kind of give, like, I give, so you might give, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of relationship is really important. So I have a close relationship with a lot of my land spirits. And a lot of it is my offering is intangible by, like, picking up grass, um, watering. This summer, I was just running around frantically watering trees. And, like, so, like, by going to actions, I feel as if I'm, like, making that an offering to the earth. For me, sustainability is also somewhat tied to cleanliness in certain ways. So cleanliness is important in Hellenism, like washing your hands, for example, or purification rituals. And to me, like I don't I don't want to get into territory of like sustainability equals pure, etc. But for me, by making these certain choices, for me, that is one way that I tap into that sort of cleanliness part of Hellenism by trying to really think about and analyze harm and like what I'm able to do. I hope that makes any sense. <laughs> no, it really does. I, I very, very much relate actually to that. I think of, I tend to think of things that I do for sustainable causes as sort of acts of service to my religion, which I, maybe sounds strange, but it's a, it's almost like an offering, but in sort of less physical form. And I also would want to mention that there's an aspect of the sort of devotion in religion being a motivating force. Because sometimes, let's be realistic, it can be quite exhausting to engage in climate activism. It can be quite difficult, especially when it feels like everything is against you. But having that sort of religious connection, for me at least, I'm not saying this has to be the case for everybody, it can be a strong motivator to keep going, to do something, to give you kind of an external cause to continue. And also, of course, there's that idea of natural cycles that's very important to my practice in particular, noticing that the land around me and noticing how, the, how they're changing in sometimes sad ways. Um, that's something that also keeps me motivated and inter interested in causes in my local area. Yeah, I fall into kind of the same boat where a lot of my, at least in my spiritual practice, a lot of the sustainability is around like things that you wouldn't necessarily consider to be spiritual. So, you know, going on walks and picking up trash. Like I live by a park that is one of my favorite places to go and I'm there nearly every day. And a huge thing that I do is I will walk the path and I pick up any garbage that I see, you know, tow things out of where, like, where they're not supposed to be. Just, just kind of taking care of that land. It's something that I... It really enjoys doing. I do it as an offering to the spirits of the river that I live nearby. I think also though on like a more scientific level. So my job is big again into kind of this like green, this like shift to, to using, you know, greener products to enhance kind of the sustainability. And it's been a personal, I guess, goal of mine to really work towards that. Like there's, there's a personal drive into making these changes 
that will have a really large impact on the environment. Like these products, if we can get them to work as well as something that's synthetic and then sell these to like really large corporations, this could have a huge impact on the environment. And so there's this like very strong kind of personal drive for the success of this kind of scientific innovation to work because of the change it can create. And I think that has been also like a huge component even of my my spiritual practice. So random aside, but I um, actually petitioned Raphael not too long ago to assist with ideation for something initially we were having in regards to this project. And of course, you know, like he does, he came through, it was great. <laughs> and we solved it. But it's also one of those things where like, they don't have to be separate, right? Like I was having an issue with this thing related to sustainability. And so I did working for it and everything came out fine. We were able to move forward. I think there can also be kind of a not necessarily tied directly to nature approach, but also just a attempting to make changes in the industry approach as well. Like that's still in service to the betterment of the earth. And that shouldn't be discarded because it's not like super, like really a part of the natural world, if that makes sense. Do you think that there are other sort of occult practices which particularly lend themselves towards sustainable activism and environmentalism? I think the animist worldview is like the most obvious one right this idea that everything has a spirit and you know why would you mistreat something when or be disrespectful by not taking care of the earth when everything has a spirit i think that kind of perspective lends a lot to this kind of push for environmental you know activism and sustainability i think i would i think it's kind of semi the same but i I guess i would put pantheism in there as well like uh, especially in neopaganism which has pantheistic properties where um there's this identification between deities, spirits, and the earth. And so there's sort of a almost positive anthropomorphism there where um, it sort of forces you to care in a, a more sort of personal and direct way. Um, I found, I haven't actually listened to them yet, so I can't attest to how good they are, but um, I found these really interesting podcast events with some witchcraft practitioners talking about ecology in their practice. And I think I'll link those in the episode description in case you're interested in hearing more about that. I think also within the occult, like one way people can be really considerate is so like herbs and crystals, I mean, we, we live in a capitalist society, right? So these will be a part of kind of occultism for many years to come, sure. And intentionally kind of taking time out of your day to ensure that they're being harvested sustainably, appropriately, is a really small thing that you can do, kind of like we talked about earlier, kind of throwing your support behind the correct people if you can. Um, I think that's a big issue that maybe the occult community needs to address as like a general whole learning to be sustainable in our own practices when it comes to you know when you're buying her herbs are we buying things that are undergoing like severe endangerment or is this an herb that can be harvested because it is so abundant the classic example is white sage with crystals we want to be ensuring that they are sustainably taken and taken care of and that we're not using like child labor to extract them. Um, All of those things play a really big role in this conversation as well. And I think it doesn't take too much time to ensure that you are kind of doing your part to make sure that those things fall in alignment with your ultimate goal. And also, yeah, I feel like maybe it's going to come across a bit ranty, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just, I, I do have this sort of deep dislike of how horrifically consumerist some modern witchcraft spaces can be and I don't know if you guys agree uh, I guess I'll find out but I'm, I'm I guess I'm thinking about things like spellbox subscriptions things where you have a really strong emphasis on material goods constantly buying things this 
kind of neat idea that you'll need to have like seven different tarot decks if you're not a reader or practices becoming very sort of aesthetified and you know you need this because it's it's pretty and it's for your altar or um even even new books I, obviously i think new books are, are fantastic and it's really great to read but often they're only available in one country which means if there's no pdf available you then have to ship it from another country and this is seen as a positive thing because you're committed to your religious practice, but that's really bad for the environment. There's loads and loads and loads of aspects where there's this push to support your community by buying and consuming and getting. And I just think it's so antithetical to a lot of the actual spiritual aspects. I don't know if you agree with that, but it's something that very, very much annoys me. And I think what you don't do is just as important about what you do. And sometimes you just need to not buy the thing. <laughs> Stunned silence for my two co-hosts. <laughs> I was waiting for Bella to talk. I know, we were, I feel like we were both looking to the way to this talk. I mean, I 100% agree. I mean, yeah. It's okay, Bella, safe space. You can do it. <laughs> it's like, do, do what you want. But I see this a lot where people are like, oh, well, you don't actually like, you know, witchcraft is all about using what you have. And then in the same breath, kind of talk about, I don't know. Yeah, like just like it's fine having Spellbox subscriptions. Obviously, you know, people got to hustle. <laughs> That's why they're popular. But like, do you know how many things I have that I've collected over the years that I don't use? Same. <laughs> so many. And like, you know, your practice doesn't have to be bare bones, of course. But, like, man, these people who sell candles on Etsy with, like, random shit in them. It, a lot of it comes back to safety as well. Where I'm like, that candle's pretty, sure, but you're going to set your house on fire, like, for real. Or people just putting salt in an offering and then dumping it on the earth. And then, like, not saying, you know, not giving any warning. The amount of times I have read books, like, magic books, that recommend things that are like directly opposed to environmental stuff it's just like what are you it's horrific honestly what it's like where what no don't do that don't do that please <laughs> don't bury jars in the ground don't dump wax on the earth don't dump salt on the earth like and i think certain things like alcohol for example it's not great for the earth but if you're not doing it in the same location it's generally okay but yeah, the amount of like lack of awareness, I'm like, what is going on here? Sometimes these books feel like five minute crafts. <laughs> <laughs> I love that take. I love that take. Yeah, I think so. A big thing in the ceremonial sphere, right? There's like this huge kind of going back to books because Phil already touched upon kind of the craft side, which I agree with basically what you both said. There's this love of beautiful books which is fine. I get it. Like who doesn't like to have a beautiful bookshelf, right? I, I would love to have a beautiful bookshelf. I don't. Um, but there's like so many people online who, and I think this is even a problem with the publishers too. Like there's no need. I mean, I get it. If that's like your thing, right? You publish beautiful occult books, people can purchase and whatever, but it's really not sustainable to continuously have like these beautiful books that are limited selection, which makes people want to get them and then also have the others. And I know so many people who will have like both types. They'll have like a hardcover and a 
a paperback. And I'm like, why do you need both? Like you, you don't need both. You can have one. And even just this kind of obsession with buying books. Like I under, I understand that people want to be educated and I fully support that. But a PDF is equally as useful. It contains the same information. It cuts out on shipping. It prevents like more printing. When I see an occult bookshop that or a publisher that has PDFs for all their books available, I have a lot of respect because it allows people a more sustainable option than perhaps purchasing a paperback. It's just, it's one of those things where it's like a small thing, but it is so popular, especially in the ceremonial space for people to like want to collect as many books as humanly possible. And I understand the desire. I've had it myself. I'm guilty of buying far too many books. At the same time, we really have to be careful and make sure that our kind of obsession, obsession is not the right word, but the curating of occult books to the extent that a lot of people do in the ceremonial space may have a negative impact on the environment, and it does. So to sort of counterpoint this, although I think there is a massive sort of problem with the culture of consumerism, and I think that is something that needs to change. Sorry if I sound like a wanker, but just please stop buying so much stuff. You don't need it. You, I, I promise. I, I promise that tarot deck is not going to change your life. Anyway, um, although I think personal choices can be important and the cu- changing cultures are important, it is also important to note that organizing in a sort of more direct way is also really going to be the, the, the key to affecting change like actually maybe it's getting a bit too political but as a solitary practitioner it can sometimes feel difficult to do things for yourself and so actually getting involved with environmental causes and activism is probably going to be important for you if you're genuinely interested in sustainability fell maybe you have something to say on this because i'm maybe being a bit unhinged <laughs> Oh, I mean, I'm just going to be more. I like how Henny's always like, this might, this, this might be a bit of a, of a take. And then I'm just here. I'm like, I'm going to destroy everything. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, there have been countless studies done on like nonviolent direct action. And one thing, and I feel like I bring this up sometimes, but I, I feel like I always have to bring it up. Whenever I talk about climate activism, almost always the immediate reaction I get is, well, I can't go to protests. And that is fine. And I want, I'm here to tell you that there are many, many, many other ways involved, the ways for you to get involved that don't require like going out to a protest, whether you can't risk that, even though not every protest is a, you know, arrestable event. If you physically can't do that, if you just mentally feel like that's not for you, like I actually don't go to like a whole lot of protests but there's like a whole lot more like today the group that I'm part of just did like a regenerative uh, trash pickup where we bonded and like there's something so amazing about like finding community in and like commiserating in many ways where you have this shared anxiety a lot of times environmental groups will also do climate grief circles Um, we need people who do like jail support or who are there to like make cookies, uh, people to do art. A lot of the people in the art group don't go to any of the protests. They just like make art for that stuff. You know, you can, there's people who need help managing media and whatnot. And so I think a lot of times people, when they look at activism or organizing, they only see the active side. Not everyone needs to be out here sewing stupid paintings, right? <laughs> um, there's a lot more people in a movement than just who you see getting arrested on TV. And so I know it's scary, but I think there's more of an impact to be made getting involved in a local group or just putting feelers out there. 
for the most part, you're not going to tweet the demise of a company unless, you know, you pay $8 for a verification and crash a company's stocks, which amazing. Love it. But generally, that doesn't happen, right? Direct action, for the most part, is more effective than indirect action, like tweeting memes about the environment while they're fun and they make you feel good. Unfortunately, they don't actually do much. I want people to be less scared of of organizing and actual like activism yeah there's a lot of groups out there i know it's scary and a lot of them are there to you know they've outreached people who are there to talk you through those fears that's that's my spiel i enjoyed it thank you very much i fully agree i have nothing to add so (laughs) maybe we should talk about though in regards to kind of activism being aware of the less desirable sides of that. I'm specifically referring here to ecofascism, which is something that, you know, the the pagan and occult community has an issue with the far right and the fascist and anti-Semitic and racist and all the problematic views that they have. And it can be really easy sometimes to follow this ideology that the economic decline of the world is the result of immigrants or that it's God's way of trying to purge the earth of undesirables. And it's it's one of those things that I think is really easy for people to get pulled into. It's I someone described it um, as environmentalism through genocide, which I think is a very interesting and like apt description. So what are what are your thoughts on kind of recognizing that, dealing with that, and even countering it? A lot of people, if I had a dollar, don't <laughs> People like to say, you know, oh, we were the virus. That's not funny, everybody. That's eco-fascism. I know you think you're being funny when you say, oh, all humans equal bad and evil. But when you say stuff like that, that's actually along the lines of eco-fascism. So just be mi- be, mi- be mindful of that. I think that creeps up a lot in like meme culture where people will say stuff like that. And I'm like, hmm. Actually, you know, you're not you're not being quirky and funny. <laughs> um, that's actually a very real issue. Um, and it's very Eurocentric because people are like, oh, we are the virus. I'm like, oof, yikes, ouch. Eee, way to lump all of the world's problems onto some of the most vulnerable people. So, yeah, just being mindful that like when you say, oh, humanity is a curse, humanity, um, it's the earth is purging us of humanity, that you're actually contributing to eco-fascist ideas so don't do that yeah i think something what to look out for is these things are very often tied to the sort of absolutist mindset and i think as we've sort of established throughout this episode there's no absolute answer it always has to be context dependent so that's a real warning sign to look out for um, alongside your sort of standard far right um sort of dog whistles if somebody has a very absolutist mindset, if they're pushing everything onto one particular community, if they're sort of viewing one particular thing as, as very, very, very negative, that's a bit of a, a bit of a red flag and something to look into. Whereas there are lots of genuine, um, really great religious and spiritual initiatives that um, are interested in environmentalism. So don't, don't let it scare you off, but just be thoughtful and critical with your approach, I think. Yeah, we're certainly not bringing it up to like make you fearful, um, but it is something that we have to like be aware of uh, within our, our communities. I think the big thing for me in kind of recognizing eco-fascism is very much so when people kind of use those statements of, you know, humanity is the scourge upon the earth as this like general blanket statement. And they totally ignore the many facets that 
kind of go into the impact that we like humans are having upon the earth that are leading to issues like climate change. It's certainly not the fault of any one particular community. And it's also very telling when the blame falls on perhaps the most marginalized groups of people. So those are just kind of things to to be aware of when we're engaging in these conversations. You know, make sure like let's let's keep it nuanced. <laughs> let's not make, you know, absolutes or these general statements that just aren't true. And if you hear those kind of things, it might, you know, be a red flag worth considering. But I think that's the last thing we had to talk about. So final thoughts? Uh, nothing really, except thank you for listening to uh, me rant for in an unhinged manner for maybe an hour. Um, and yeah, I would really like to hear if you guys are involved in any um, ecological um, activism um, in our Discord, maybe, um, especially if it has spiritual aspects, but it doesn't have to. Yeah, let us know. Final thoughts. You know, not to start getting all hippy-dippy or maybe, maybe getting all hippy-dippy, just... You know, when you're thinking about sustainability and environmentalism, make sure you're not focusing the human, but also the more than human, you know, trees. Your cat is a part of the environment. Cats are an invasive species in a lot of parts of the world. So also, you know, be mindful about letting them outside. <laughs> Just use a combination of common sense and research. I think my final thoughts are going to be, you know, if you can join an environmental group in your area, by all means, at least check them out. Um, see if it's something you're interested in contributing to. And the other would be to remind yourself that environmentalism can take and like advocating for that can take a lot of different forms, right? Like, like I mentioned earlier, I do a lot of it in my work, which is not something you might expect, but it is equally as effective as maybe joining an environmental group and doing something really heavily related to nature. So if, you know, that's maybe not your preference, like consider other ways in which you can bring kind of this topic to into your life and um, be a part of the solution. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate you taking the time as always. If you are not yet in our Discord, you can find that linked below. We also have an Instagram that has not been updated in a very long time. Um, you can certainly follow it and we'll probably be getting back to updating it as re- episodes are released. So go to follow if you haven't already. Join the Discord community um, where we talk about a lot of the topics we discuss on the podcast. Um, we also ask you guys for episode ideas and we have weird spiritual thought requests and topic discussions as well. Always a fun time over there. Also, I wanted to mention um, regarding kind of environmentalism and the impact that it has within like spiritual communities, Ari the Oak Witch is a colleague of ours who talks a lot about these kind of topics on her channel. So if you haven't checked her out, go ahead and do so. We'll probably link her channel down below as well. So easy access for you. But yeah, that's it. All right. Have a good day and we'll see you next week. Bye everyone.